If you'll <clears throat> please turn to 1 Peter 3 today for our uh, message, sermon text. You'll see in your bulletins our focus will be on verses 18 through 22 in chapter 3, uh, but I'll give a reading from verse 8 to the end of the chapter for context. And I'll just give a quick refresher if you haven't been in First Peter recently. Uh, Peter, the apostle, is writing around 60 A.D., probably from Rome. We can see that indicated in chapter 5 when he says, She who is at Babylon... So we, we can guess that when he refers to Babylon, he's referring to Rome. But um, he's writing to who? He's, uh, he's writing to Christians who are dispersed throughout what we would know today as Turkey. Pontus, Galatia, and others, other churches, if we look at the beginning of the book, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, those were the um, churches in that region of what we know as Turkey today. But why is he writing? Why is Peter writing to these dispersed Christians that he continues to call, or he calls the dispersion? Well, these Jews and Gentile Christians were surprised that they were suffering for their faith. They were surprised that they were suffering for living changed lives. They had been conformed more and more to Christ, and they were surprised that they were experiencing fiery trials. So Peter is writing to encourage them. And he even says, Beloved, do not be surprised. This is chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's writing to encourage these suffering Christians to endure through the suffering as an offering to God, to endure suffering like Christ endured suffering for them. And so let's, keeping that in mind, let's hear from God's word. Starting from verse 8 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless, for this, for to this you were called, not, or that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled 
But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. So about a month ago, I was checking my news to stay up to date, and there was a woman who was incarcerated in Texas for 11 years. Maybe you've heard of this woman, but Miss Elizabeth Holmes was imprisoned for wire fraud. I'll explain that. Um, She had promised, she actually had a $9 billion company that she started, Stanford Dropout. She started a company that they, were, they had a vision that, they, that she presented to investors that she could provide, or she was researching and hoping to provide in-home blood tests in every home in America. That was the vision. But why was she incarcerated? Well, she promised, and then she said that she had actually accomplished this feat, that she was able to have in-home blood tests and started to sell this machine. Of course, she was lying. This machine was giving false results. So she was lying that she was giving good blood tests at the same level as we have blood tests in a clinic today, but at the same time putting lives in danger, right? We go to check our blood to make sure that we're in good health. But when the tests come through giving us false information, what do we, what, that could put lives in danger, right? We understand this as Christians, uh, it's a sixth commandment violation. She bore false witness, as we see in the ninth commandment, but it went so far as to endanger lives. And what do we read in our text Peter is quoting um, from Psalm 34, 16. The Christian understands that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Miss Holmes and her president, Sonny Balwani, 
are rightly facing the, uh, the judgment for their crimes. And the rest of the unbelieving world would agree. She put people's lives in danger. She should be punished for that. But how does that co- connect with our text this morning in First Peter, where Miss Holmes was suffering for doing evil? Contrary to this, the Christians in First Peter were suffering for doing good. They were being punished and judged by those around them, by the Roman society, for doing good. Just to give a little context to that, in Roman culture, the the Roman society, um, there was a certain way of living that was um, specifically Roman. But as these Christians, the Christian church was growing in in this time, uh, Christians understood that some things in Roman culture, the Roman way, was inconsistent with Scripture. They had to abstain and reject certain parts of Roman culture, right? We understand that today. There's things that we just can't do as Christians in that our, the rest of society partakes in, right? And so what happened when these Christians, the, the dispersion was rejecting the Roman way? How did the Roman society respond? Well, the Roman society saw you're rejecting, you know, to these dispersion Christians, you're rejecting the Roman way. You're rejecting, if you're doing that, you're rejecting us. Therefore, we reject you. How did they respond? They responded in uh, ostracizing, putting Christians, these dispersion Christians to open shame, slandering them, as we saw in our text, inflicting violence upon these dispersion Christians because they wouldn't take part in the blood sport of the theater, the immoral after parties, the, um, the worship of false gods, the pantheon of the Romans. So they rejected them. They even took away their personal property, the destruction of their churches, right? That's clear in church history. And so that brings about the theme question. It rightly follows for our verses 18 through 22. Well, preceding that, there's a question that's being asked. It's, it would seem to uh, Peter quoting Psalm 34, the, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, but to those who do good, you will be blessed. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from seeking, speaking deceit. Let him turn away from, do, from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. But then the Christians, the dispersion Christians in Peter's day, and the question that should rise up in our hearts is Why? Why should I do good when I'm suffering for it? The theme question this morning is, why do Christians suffer for doing good in this life? Why do Christians suffer for doing good in this life? And 
we'll see that our text this morning, Peter is answering that question. He's answering it in three ways, as I've outlined here. We see in our text, because Christ suffered, as our first point, and second, because Noah suffered, and last, because of the sign of suffering. Christ suffered, Noah suffered, and the sign of suffering. So starting from the first point, in answering the question, why do Christians suffer for doing good in this life? Maybe we don't have to abstain from the blood sport theater in the way it was in Roman culture, or we don't have to abstain from cultural idols that are made out of stone, wood, and metals, right? What do we struggle with today? What are things that we have to abstain from, even suffer the rejection of others from abstaining from? Well, just to name one, we're very close to Green Bay. Um, there's uh, some uh, sports activities that happen on the Lord's Day, right? We can't take part in that. We can't necessarily... We, we, we enter into ethical debate. Should I go to the game on Sunday, or is this a day set apart for, to set aside that so that I may better worship God? We can ask in our hearts, why should I do good? Why, why should I abstain from watching certain TV shows? Why should I abstain from playing certain games or video games? Why should I abstain from certain dialogue? Why should I if I'm going to suffer rejection from my friends for it anyway? My neighbors, my co-workers, even dear non-believing friends that we've had for many years. Why do I have to give up drunkenness, promiscuity, lying, and lying when culture presses so hard for us to engage in those things? Why not just give in? Why do I have to suffer for doing good when I'll suffer anyway for doing evil? Why bother? We can wrestle in the Christian life at different times with this question. I know I did as a new believer. I was like, why do I have to put away these things? Well, our text answers us this morning, verse 18, because Christ suffered. Why do Christians suffer for doing good? Because Christ suffered for doing good unto sinners, unto his church. The church of Christ suffers because Christ suffered for her, right? Christ suffered the righteous one for the unrighteous. Peter is bringing his audience back into the narrative of Scripture, right? He's reminding us, don't you remember where you've come from? You were in danger of death and eternal conscious hell because of your unrighteous standing before God. 
because of your putrid sin, my putrid sin. But now, Christ, the righteous one, the righteous one, as we see here in the text, has taken your place. He took what you deserved. He drank the cup of wrath that you deserved, you being the unrighteous one. Dear believer in Christ, he suffered so that you would not have to die in eternal death and punishment that you rightly deserved. He was right to leave us to that punishment. But what did he do instead? He has bonded himself to us. Talking about the union we have with Christ. Christ, not wishing for us to suffer eternal hell, came and suffered hell for us. uniting himself to us, bonding himself to us to be conformed to his loving image by his own suffering. We know from 1 John it says, we love because Christ loves us. We could say it here, we suffer because Christ suffered for us. And so in this union with Christ, in our union with him, what does this mean for the Christian? It means that Christ as the head of the church, we know that from Ephesians, and we're the body, believers are the body of Christ, the church, where Christ goes, so does the church. Or I've said it another way by a colleague, as it goes for Christ, so it goes for the church. Where Christ, the head of the church, goes, so does his body. In the same way as uh, any boxer, wrestler, or fencer understands, when you move your opponent's head in a certain direction, their body follows the head, right? That is our union with Christ in, in an illustrative way, right? And so the implication is, on the one hand, there's a difficult reality we must understand as Christians or any seeking to pursue the Christian life, you must keep this in mind. You must weigh this in considering a life with Christ. It means if Christ suffered ahead of us as the head of the church into the grave, even into the grave, that is also our path, right? The body follows the head. We go where he goes. Jesus said it quite clearly in Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He says it twice. If you're coming after me, a life with Christ means coming after him and following him, you have to take up your cross daily, right? It's a heavy word, right? To say it another way, if we are united to Christ, this life will consist of suffering until death, until the grave. <clears throat> However, on the other hand, verse 18 continues. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. As believers in Christ, we face the grave, we face suffering to the grave in this life, but because Christ suffered shame, rejection, and violence unto death, just like these dispersion Christians are suffering, he did not remain in the grave. He did not remain in the grave. Christ suffered and died, but then he rose from the dead. And this means by Christ identifying and uniting himself to his church in his death, the church will also follow him out of the grave into glory. Though we follow Christ to the grave in suffering, we will follow him out of the grave into glory. Jesus suffered once for the sins of those who believe so that he might bring his church to God. That's the promise. The path of the church does not end in suffering and death that we endure in this life, but rather it is the grave is the transition point from suffering to enjoying God without the hindrance of suffering in heaven for eternity. Right? Therefore, what's the application? What's the lesson? What do we apply to our lives? When we face Christ's promise of suffering and taking up our cross daily and following him in this life before the grave, a life of suffering, when, when those fiery trials come upon us that we ought not to be surprised of in following Jesus, the believer can hold fast to the truth that as it goes for Christ, so it goes for the church. If we suffer now for doing good, as is Peter's exhortation, we will enjoy eternal glory with Christ in the resurrection, right? The crown, to spin the phrase around, the crown always follows the cross for the believer. The glory, the day of glory, or the sunrise will come after the darkness. The glory will come after the suffering. The crown follows the cross in this life. Well, I should say the crown follows in the next life, the suffering in this life. And so therefore, now knowing that we suffer because Christ suffers, we move to Peter's second answer. Noah suffered. Noah suffered. Here we get into some more difficult parts of the text, but just to stay in 18 for a minute longer, you probably noticed I didn't finish it, that the end of the text of verse 18 says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In the flow of Peter's argument, this latter section of 18, I understand, can't be separated from 19 and 20. So the ESV here renders this made alive in the spirit, right? Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Though um, I find that language to be a little confusing, it's, it's still correct, but 
Um, this all this part of the passage can also be rendered. Uh, Jesus was kept alive in the Spirit. So your ESV says made alive in the Spirit, but it can also be understood in different translations or from the Greek. Jesus was kept alive in the Spirit. This translation, I think, uh, is more intuitive to the context, uh, both theologically, well, also theologically, as well as the context. Verse 19, following this, if you insert that Jesus was kept alive in the Spirit, it flows nicely, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Formerly did not obey. When Jesus suffered, to be clear, when Jesus suffered and died physically in his humanity, he did not die in his divine spirit. He was kept alive in his divine spirit. We know from Westminster Shorter Catechism 21, we affirm that Christ has, is one person, but he has two natures. So in his hum, human nature, he died on the cross, but in his divine spirit, he continued on, as, as was from the beginning, right? His divinity had had no beginning. It was before all things, right? Before what we understand in time. The same, so Peter's going on to say, this same divine spiritual existence that he had when he preached in the time of Noah. So if we understand his divine uh, spirit was kept alive, this is the same spirit that was in the time of Noah, in which he spoke through Noah. He preached through Noah, a more primitive gospel, but pointing back to Genesis and understanding how, well, in our, in the OPC and in Reformed denominations, we understand that Christ preaches through the prophets. Christ preaches in the Old Testament as well as the New and as well as today through faithful preachers who are faithfully preaching the word, Right? We see this clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1 in this very book. It says in verse 10 and 11, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ, that divine Spirit, in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. So we see with, with an understanding that Christ's divine spirit was in the triune God, right? One but many, three and one. He was there in the time of Noah, preaching through Noah, warning to unbelievers a primitive gospel that they might be saved from the wrath to come, the judgment. And just like in the time of the dispersion and in our lives today, Noah suffered rejection in his pre from his preaching, right? The whole world rejected him. He preached and preached warning, but he received rejection. Now, it's unclear here whether Noah suffered physical harm from his generation, 
But Peter here uses Noah as an illustration of enduring suffering for the church. Peter is using Noah as, as a type. The church of Jesus Christ in its primitive form was in Noah's day as well as ours today, right? So Peter's saying, don't be surprised. Noah suffered in his time. He suffered rejection from the whole world. Dear dispersion Christians, dear beloved Christians of our day, don't be surprised that you suffer because Noah suffered. What's an example we could use? Perhaps maybe you have friends and family who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who you do not desire that they would perish, right? And maybe you've been able to have the opportunity and the grace to share the gospel with gentleness and kindness, like we saw in our passage, uh, 1 Peter 3.15. You're able to be a witness, yet they rejected you. Maybe they reject your message, but maybe they reject the message and you. It's painful. I know that's personally, uh, to me, I know that's painful to be rejected by friends and family. But what is Peter encouraging the dispersion Christians? How is Christ encouraging the church of Jesus Christ through this letter by his spirit today? He's saying, do not be surprised. The church In Noah's day, Noah, he suffered, and so therefore you can endure suffering like he did. You can endure suffering. You can be encouraged. That is not unusual that suffering happens to us because Jesus and Noah suffered as it happens in our church today. And of course, we know different nations, even in our prayer this morning for Haiti, they're suffering in different ways, more than we suffer. They can take encouragement from this text. We come back to that saying, as it goes for Christ, so it goes for the church. As it went for Noah, a type of church in his time, so it goes for the church in our day. The church suffers because Christ suffered for her, just as Noah suffered in his time. And so therefore, being further assured in suffering that we face by fiery trials that we experience today, rejection from friends and family and neighbors who we want to know Christ, we come to our last encouragement the sign of suffering, the sign of suffering. If you look um, with me at the verse in 21, it says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. If left here, if Peter had left us hanging here, this would be a troubling text for the Protestant tradition. But Peter, thankfully, hedges this bold statement, baptism now saves you with 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as appeal as an appeal to God for a good conscience. I was reading up on the reformers, specifically uh, John Kelvin and uh, uh, Turretin, um, and they they took it to task uh, for uh, the the church that they were coming out of in their time, uh, specifically honing in on what Peter says here, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What does Peter mean by this? Well, he's, maybe it's better to say what this text is not saying before we say what it is saying. Well, like uh, Kelvin and uh, Turretin said that if, if you understand this text, it's not saying that the actual physical water and words administered changes you, right? When they're administered, it's not in themselves that there is a, a magical work done. Otherwise, the best practice would be to round up as many of our non-believing friends and neighbors and co-workers and uh, get our ordained brothers uh, and <laughs> start uh, performing the rite of baptism on people, right? And they'd be magically turned into Christians. That's not what Peter's saying. He's saying, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not the physical thing, right, that has power in itself. But on the other hand, this, uh, this verse can also be made or, or made use of by other Protestant denominations to say that it is a proof of a believer, right? So baptism, in certain denominations, they say baptism is a proof that someone is a believer. We have a number of objections that rise with that as well. If uh, our elders here, um, when you were ordained, you probably weren't given uh, lenses, right? You probably weren't given lenses when you were ordained and saying, these are how you tell whether someone's a Christian or not, right? We, we have no way, uh, elders, deacons, or any believer, we, we have no way of seeing whether someone is a believer except for the fruit of their lives, right? So it's, it's hard to say that baptism is, uh, is, a, is a proof that someone is a Christian. We even have other parts of Scripture that say there will be wolves among the sheep, Baptism isn't merely a proof of someone being a Christian. But you're probably wondering by now, well, what is it? <laughs> what is baptism? What is Peter saying here? What is the flow of his message in using baptism? Well, if it's not a magic wand or a proof of faith, Peter is showing us here that baptism can and is seen as a sign of suffering. Precisely, it's pointing us to the suffering of Christ. It's pointing us to the suffering of Christ. It's even said to be an anti-type. If you're familiar with typology, um, it's okay if you're not, but for those who are, uh, there's usually a type and anti-type in the flow of Scripture. Things from the Old Testament as a type, like I mentioned Noah, though that's not explicit to the text, but like Noah pointed ahead to the suffering of the church, so 
the floodwaters of Noah's day, corresponding to this, as it says in our text, the floodwaters point us to the antitype of suffering, the sufferings of Christ. Baptism is a sign of the suffering of Christ. He endured, it's a sign showing that he endured the judgment waters that we deserved, that the church rightly deserved. He endured the judgment waters for us. And so when the rite of baptism is given to us, it shows it's we are when we mark ourselves with that sign, it's pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us to the promise that Christ suffered for those who believe, right? It's a sign given to the covenant community, pointing us all to Christ, looking again to confession, repentance, and faith in Jesus Christ again and again. So when we think back as an application over and over again, when when we see a baptism, when we receive baptism, when we see others being baptized, who are we pointed to? We're pointed to the the sign itself is pointing us to the suffering of Christ. So if in Noah's time, he points ahead to the suffering of Christ and the church, and baptism points back to the suffering of Christ, this whole text is Christ-centered, right? This application pointing us back to confession and repentance, bringing us back into the narrative of Scripture of our condition without Christ, and then pointing us where to go to Christ. We're brought into Peter's theme of suffering that is seen in most, much of the book. All this talk of Christ Suffering, the suffering of the church, and the sign of suffering, we are reminded of Peter's encouragement to endure suffering for doing good. We ask that question, why do Christians suffer for doing good in this life? All these points point us back to Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering. And again, to refer back to um, the, the, uh, the hook of this uh, sermon, we remember... Uh, Elizabeth Holmes, she suffered for doing evil, but we, we know as believers, having confessed Christ, we know our sin, that Christ has forgiven, we can look at Elizabeth Holmes and make this same free offer to her. She is not doomed to endure the judgment forever for doing wrong, but she also can receive this message. She can receive and look to the suffering of Christ for forgiveness. She can look to the sign of baptism pointing to Christ. She can look to Noah and see, wow, following Christ means taking up my cross daily and following him if she would repent, if she would consider this. And that's true of us. If anyone here today has not received the Lord Jesus Christ, who has not looked and considered his suffering and what it would mean to follow him, I encourage you, though it is a suffering life, 
The crown follows the cross. There is glory that follows shame, ostracism, being left alone, that we endure from a world that may reject us for abstaining from things that they would want us to engage into. What is the promise for the Christian in enduring suffering? What is the crown? Again, the Christian's destiny does not lie in the grave. It does not lie in eternal hell. The believer's destiny continues on past suffering in this life to honor, power, presence, and comfort as a part of this crown. Though we struggle against external harm and shame in this life before a watching world, when we catch up to Christ, our destiny... Our destiny is to be honored with unimaginable affirmation. The promise of Scripture is that when we come into God's assembly, he will honor us before all, right? Though we suffer weakness before slanderers in this life, more or less, when we're rejected by our friends and neighbors and family, painfully suffering, our destiny is to reign with Christ on high with unbelievable power. Though we suffer weakness, we will have power. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Though we experience ostracism in this life, in some contexts, being imprisoned and left alone, our destiny is to be brought to God's unspeakable presence. Face to face. Unbroken fellowship with our Savior and Lord. Unbroken fellowship with the believers, the Church of Christ. And we will enjoy true rest and fellowship without any hindrance of suffering. Peter says, what Peter is saying is, where Christ is, he is, where is Christ? It says in our, in our text, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him, we will be with him. We have that benefit in a sense now. We know we are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. But when the time comes, we will be with him in heavenly rest in heaven. Where Christ is, there we will also be. He is the believer's destiny. And therefore... In conclusion, when someone asks you why Christians or maybe a non-believing friend, neighbor, or family member asks you, why do you have to suffer so much in this life? Why bother? Why not just give up? Why not suffer for doing evil? We have our answer here. Because Christ suffered. Because Noah the church suffered 
And we are marked with the sufferings of Christ that we are conformed to, but not left to in this life. Christ suffered, but he not only suffered and died, but he rose to honor, power, presence, and comfort, and so will we. That's the promise. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this encouraging text that when we enter into suffering, when we enter into fiery trials in this life, we are not without hope. You comfort us from your word in this life, and especially from this text with what is to come, that you might, and we know for sure, will bring us to God because of our faith in the suffering servant who identified with us, who fellowshiped with us in his suffering for our sake. So we look to him again today by faith. Help us take up our cross daily out of joy for him taking up the cross for us. We pray in his name. Amen.